Please join me in your Bibles in Psalm 120. We'll be reading Psalm 120 through 121 and 122. Psalm 120, a song of ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Psalm 21, 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. May God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray together as we come to these psalms today together in God's Word. Our God and our Father, we can resonate with the words of these psalms as they speak of the distress that often comes to our hearts as your people living in this world that is full of sin and darkness. And Father, we can resonate with the journey that our lives take through this world, through the hills and the valleys where there are dangers to encounter. But Father, where we are confident that you are our keeper and that you are with us and that you preserve our lives, not just in this world, but forevermore in eternity. And Father, our hearts resonate with the great call of Psalm 122 and how glad we are to be able to come with the people of God into the house of the Lord and to worship you and to give you praise and to receive grace from you. And so, Father, this morning, would you bless your word to us? Holy Spirit, would you illuminate its meaning to us? And would you help us, Father, to trust it and through trusting it to trust you such that we might not just be hearers of your word, but more and more become doers? Father, may the words of my mouth this morning and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So by way of confession a little bit this morning, I was out of town all week this past week at a conference, and I had the privilege of being one of the speakers at that conference, and since I already had that sermon prepared and also gleaned all kinds of great truth from the other speakers, I decided to give myself a little bit of a break this week and use some of that material here with you today instead of writing a whole new sermon in Acts chapter 20 when I got home on Friday. I mean, you guys weren't at the conference, so you didn't hear any of that, so uh, none of this is going to sound repetitive to you, right? I was in Colorado this past week up in Estes Park in the, in the, on the edge of Rocky Mountain National Park, about eight thousand feet in elevation with absolutely incredible breathtaking views 
of those mountains. And so when Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes up to the hills, the conference room that we were in had big double doors and we opened those doors when we were preaching on Psalm 121 and we could just see those snow-capped mountains in the distance and it was glorious. I was there with a group that our church here has belonged to for the last 21 years. It's a network of churches called FIRE. FIRE is an acronym, Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelical Churches. Churches like ours. Churches that are committed to robust biblical teaching and preaching. Churches that are independent churches that are governed by their own elder boards and not by an outside denomination or government force. It is a a fellowshipping network of these churches. Fire doesn't tell its churches how to conduct their business, how to worship. It just exists to gather these churches like ours together for fellowship among the pastors and people of those churches, for mutual encouragement and for support, which we so much need as we labor for the kingdom, and so that we can come together and work together to support missionaries all around the world and collaborate together on various projects and ministries all around the world so that we can be more effective together than we might be alone. FIRE was formed in the year 2000. Today, there are about 115 churches from mostly all over the United States, but also all around the world. This year at the conference, there were churches and missionaries from around America, but also from South Africa and from India and from Mauritius and from Nepal and from Sweden. And so it was a delight to meet all of those people and hear what the Lord is doing in all of those places and pray for all of those churches. Our church got involved with FIRE um, the year that it was formed. We became a member in the year 2001, uh, which was also the first year that I came here to this church. And I've been going to the conferences since 2003, and the first one that I went to that year was such a profound and powerful encouragement to me that except for a few years when I was sick or had conflicting schedules, I've gone to every single conference ever since. At these conferences, there's, there's great preaching always and worship always, but the highlight and what makes it a different kind of conference or fellowship from other conferences where big-name celebrity speakers are always featured and thousands and thousands of people that you have no idea who they are come, in FIRE, our focus is on the fellowship between the pastors and the churches, and it's on praying for one another. And so we spend hours, literally each day, listening to every single pastor and missionary share about his church, and about his ministry, and about his family, and about what's going on, and what's hard, and what we can give praise for. And then we pray for one another out loud in a big group. And you cannot imagine the blessing And the encouragement of having a room full of pastors pray for you and pray for your church. I wish that you could all come to these conferences with me. But I want you to be assured that our little church here in Felton is being prayed for literally by people all around the world. And that's a a big, big deal. So this year the theme of our conference was the 15 Psalms in the book of Psalms that are known as the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 120 through 135. They're called the Psalms of Ascent. These were the Psalms that were specifically written and sung by the Old Testament people of God as they were making annual pilgrimage, journeying to Jerusalem during the time of the annual feasts that the Old Testament Scriptures prescribed and commanded them to go to and to observe every single year. And that involved especially three main feasts of Passover, celebrating, of course, as you remember from not too many weeks ago, God's deliverance of the people from Egypt in the book of Exodus. And the second major annual feast was the Feast of Sukkot or Booths, Tabernacles, celebrating God's protection and 
provision for the people in the wilderness as they made their way out of Egypt and through the wilderness towards the promised land. And then thirdly, the Feast of Weeks called Shavuot in the Old Testament in Hebrew. In Greek, it's known as Pentecost. The word Pentecost means 50 because this feast comes 50 days after the first day of Passover. Shavuot means weeks because of the counting of the weeks after Passover because this is a celebration of when 50 days after they left Egypt, God gave the law to Israel at Mount Sinai and constituted them as His holy nation and and provided uniquely for them as they came into the promised land. And it's also a celebration of the providence of God and bringing in the harvest every year. And making sure that his people had food and that they were provided for. And so they would come and put their faith in him and give thanks to him as their covenant God for all that he provided for them. So every year at the time of these feasts, the Israelites would all travel from wherever they were living all around. They would make pilgrimage from the the various towns and villages where they lived all around Israel and oftentimes beyond the borders of Israel. And they would make their way up to Jerusalem, you might remember from other studies that we've done together, even in the book of Acts, that the geography of Israel is such that when you're traveling to Jerusalem, you're always going up wherever you're coming from, because Jerusalem is situated in the, in the central part of the country, up in the hill country, and on top of what's called the central Benjamin Plateau, about 2,500 feet above sea level. And so every year during the feast, when the people were making pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they were, wherever they were coming from, they were going up into the hill country, into the Benjamin Plateau, into Jerusalem, into the temple on Mount Zion. They were ascending. And so that's why these 15 psalms are called the Seir Ha'amalot in Hebrew, the, the Psalms of Ascent sung by the people on their way up to Jerusalem to worship God, to revel in His goodness and His faithfulness. Now, the book of Psalms itself, the whole book of 150 Psalms in general, was was once referred to kind of famously by Martin Luther as he called it a little Bible in the middle of the big Bible. Because all of the central themes that God reveals in the Scriptures as a whole about God's nature, about God's character, about His holiness, about His law, about sin, about justice, about mercy and forgiveness and steadfast love and everything else that God reveals in the Bible, all of that is found in the Psalms. And all of it in the Psalms is expressed in a way through poetry, through song that's meant to engage Every aspect of human existence, not just our brains, but also our hearts, our souls, our emotions, mind, body, heart, body, soul, spirit, brain, mouth, emotion, in pouring out praise to God for everything that is true and real about Him. And of course, in the Psalms, all of that truth is expressed in the context of all of the various realities of of living life in this world, of all of the various experiences that people of God have as we live our lives and and journey as pilgrims through life in this world that is burdened and that is groaning under the weight and the curse of sin. And so Luther called the whole Psalter a little Bible because everything that the Bible reveals is, is consolidated and condensed and concentrated in the book of Psalms. And I think that in the same kind of way, we might call this section of the Psalter, of, of Psalms between 120 and 135, these Psalms of Ascent, I think we could call this a little Psalter. Because in some sense, the, the pilgrims' ascent to Jerusalem as they came together to appear before God, and everything that is entailed in the journey that they had to take multiple times during the year, and and in the joyfulness of the destination that they were going to, the house of the Lord, the courts of the Most High God, 
and everything that the worship of God entails and all of the great benefits that come from Him and worshiping Him, all of that is is something of a summary, isn't it? Of the Psalter in general and of the journey of life in general, even the journey that we're all on as, as, as we live as pilgrims in this world that is not our home, as sojourners making our way towards what Hebrews calls the better country, the eternal kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. So, that's what life is, right? It's a, it's a pilgrimage of the saints of God through the trials and the afflictions of this world, also including places and times where the lines cross pleasantly in God's good providence, agonizing seasons where we become more dependent on God, and also sweet times where our souls rejoice at His faithfulness and goodness to us. There are times where we experience temptation, where we understand and come to be acquainted with our own weakness and our own failure, and so we need so much to open wide our mouths and be filled with God's mercy and grace. There are times both when we pray for God to save and when we pray for God to avenge His holy name in this wicked world during the course of our lives, and all of that is what the Psalms are all about too, and these Psalms of Ascent especially. So in so many ways, the the book of Psalms, the the little Bible, the 150 Psalms, is such a powerful guide given by God for the journey of the sojourning saint. If you've ever gone through anything as a Christian in this world, as a child of God in this world, where your heart is being torn apart by the things of this world, by the enemies of God, by your own sin, or your heart is rejoicing in His goodness and faithfulness, you can find many psalms that express all of that same experience and that guide you through the journey, teaching us, strengthening us, nurturing us all along the way pointing us to the eternal kingdom and, and, and always satisfying our souls with the holiness and the faithfulness and the goodness of our great Redeemer and King in a way that transforms us more and more into His image and the image of His holiness. Luther said that the Psalms in general, the, the 150, the Psalms, he said, breathe the very aroma of sanctity For they not only relate the works, but also the words of holy men and how they communed with and prayed to God and how they still commune and pray to Him. The Psalms represent to us the life and the very image of sanctity, of what it looks to live in holiness. And in so many ways, the Ascent Psalms here, these 15, concentrate all of that rich wisdom and food for our souls all the more and provide a really powerful summary of all that God's Word gives us as pilgrims in this world, making our way towards the better country by by tuning our hearts in to the hearts of those pilgriming Old Testament saints as they made their way from various points to come up into the hill country into the Benjamin Plateau, into the gates of Jerusalem, into the temple, in order to celebrate and render praise to God for His mercies and His mighty works in delivering His people and providing for His people and saving His people, especially in those times that were commemorated by the Passover and the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths. Now, Your bulletins say today that our specific text is Psalm 121, but I had Michael read Psalm 120, 121, and 122, the opening three of the Psalms of Ascent, because they go together, really. And together they express the heart of the sojourning pilgrim making his way to Jerusalem in a way that's very, really illustrative to us of the journey of life that we're all on as God's people in this world. Psalm 122, the third of these opening Psalms of Ascent, starts out by saying, that Psalm 122 verse 1, I was so glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And that verse to me is, 
and the great sentiment that it conveys to me gets right at the core of what the Holy Spirit, through the rich nutrients of the Word of God, is, is cultivating in the soil of our souls through His Word, which is this. It's a growing, deepening desire to know truth about God, but truth that is in service to the even greater desire of knowing God and being with Him in His presence and communing with Him. If you've read J.I. Packer's famous book, Knowing God, he says this in that book, there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. Because when you truly know God, that's when you have energy to serve Him and boldness to share Him and contentment to rest in Him through whatever trials you're experiencing in life. If you just know about God, you don't have that energy. The knowledge about God needs to foster in us a a desire for God and to know Him and to rest and serve Him. Leonard Ravenhill said something similar. I don't know if you all know him. Famous old feisty old preacher who's now in the presence of his king. But, But he said, a man may study... Because his brain is hungry for knowledge, even Bible knowledge. But a man prays because his soul is hungry for God. And that is what God wants to cultivate in our souls, a hunger for Him. And so Psalm 122 and verse 1 is expressing this joyful exclamation of a soul that is hungry for God, longing in the pressures that are all around us in this world to come into the courts of God, into His presence in order to worship Him. That's what I want more than anything in this world. And that's what I want more than anything for all of us as the body of Christ to have flourishing in our own souls. A hunger for God. So I want us to know all about God. I want us to have a rich and full and robust knowledge and understanding of everything that God has revealed to us about Himself in His Word. I want us to be prepared to recognize Satan's schemes and strategies and all the lies and false teaching that's out there so that we can reject it and even be equipped to refute it when necessary. I want for all of us to be hungry for the truth of God's Word, but so that we will be hungry for Him. Right? And we shouldn't be satisfied with just knowledge about Him and a brain hunger for that knowledge unless it's translating into a life and soul hunger for Him. I want all of us as God's children to be lovers of God's truth and right doctrine so that More and more and more we will become lovers of God who are energized to serve Him, who are bold to share Him, who are content to rest in Him and depend on Him as we run the race with endurance and strive for holiness and and strive towards the entrance of the eternal kingdom of our blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So look at Psalm 120 here, because this is what the Psalms are doing And what the Psalms of Ascent in particular are doing. This is what they're fostering in God's people. Look at the the opening verse of, of the first of these opening three Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 120. It starts out like this. In my distress, I called out to the Lord and He answered me. It's giving voice, see, to the struggle that it is. For the people of God to live in a fallen, godless world. Verse 2 Deliver me, O God, from lying lips and a deceitful tongue, because in this world, that's what people do with reference to God and His truth. They suppress His truth and they exchange it for lies, and it's frustrating, isn't it? It's maddening if you love the truth of God to watch everybody around you 
suppress it and exchange it for lies and say none of that's true. Here's what's true when you know that it's false. It's frustrating. And see, this was, that's not anything that is unique to any specific people in any one part of the world or any one era of history, the suppression of truth, right? It's, it's a constant throughout the history of this fallen world. We're always surrounded by lying lips. And so we can well resonate with this cry of the pilgrim child of God, deliver me, O God, from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. Do you find yourself just screaming that at your TV sometimes if you're watching the news? If you're watching our own elected officials lie about what's good and what's evil? Deliver me from this, God. And then then verse 5 of Psalm 120, the psalmist cries out, Woe to me! that I sojourn in Meshech and dwell among the tents of Kedar. Those were foreign lands outside of the Holy Land. Those were places that were dominated by it and that were characterized by worldliness and ungodliness and idolatry and all kinds of spiritual and moral darkness. Those were places like California. And this is where the psalmist lived. And so we can, we can relate. He was surrounded with, in his life, all kinds of wickedness, and it was hard for him. It was a burden on his godly soul to be surrounded constantly by ungodliness, by people who refused to worship the Creator and who were out there so flagrantly reveling in and, 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 and luxuriating in the worship of the creation. People love to go to the beach, and I used to love to go to the beach, and I still love to go to the beach when there's nobody on the beach. The beach is beautiful because God made the beach, but the people on the beach are not beautiful because they're worshiping the creation so often and not the Creator. You know what I'm talking about. People who revel in godlessness and immorality and sensuality and falsehood and darkness. People who love what God hates. People who hate what God loves and have no love for God in their souls. And that's patently obvious just in the way that they are in the world. It's frustrating. It's difficult. The psalmist is expressing that it's hard for people who love God and love His truth to live surrounded by people like that and by all the falsehood and idolatry and immorality that godless people bask in in this world. It's not easy to live during these evil days in this dark world where the, where the spirit of this age is just eating away at society like acid and the rulers of this world are just raging against God. Verse 6, Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace, the psalmist says in Psalm 120. I'm for peace. I'm for the truth that makes peace. I'm for the God who alone creates peace. I'm for the Prince of Peace. But whenever I speak, the people around me are for war. Against God and against one another. And basically he's saying in Psalm 120, I've had enough. And every child of God can say, Amen, I I feel you. We can relate. And then if you go all the way back over to Psalm 122 in the first verse of it that we read a minute ago, you can relate to the world-weary saint saying, because I'm sick of it, I was so glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Right? Let's get out of here. Let's head away from the godlessness of Meshach and Kedar and head for Jerusalem. Let's go to God's house and surround ourselves with God's people and enter into God's presence and let's go worship God and rejoice in His greatness and goodness and faithfulness and receive grace and mercy from Him. That's what we need the most and want the most. And see, God's Word ought to be cultivating that in our hearts, right? As His people, as His children who are living like pilgrims and sojourners in this world that's not our home. God the Holy Spirit through the living active word, must be cultivating in all of us a growing and burning hatred for everything in this world that God hates and abominates 
and then on the other side, a growing, burning passion and longing for his truth and righteousness and ultimately for his presence, for him. That's what you see going on in in all of the Psalms and in all the psalmists. When life is hard, they're driven to the presence of their God. And they're made aware of the fact that it's a good and merciful thing, right? Psalm 119, it was good for me that I was afflicted. It's a good and merciful thing that our God sovereignly allows and ordains for us to go through the afflictions so that we can learn to find solace in Him and satisfaction in Him. So I hope that's what God's doing in you and the Holy Spirit is cultivating in your soul. I hope that as you live in the world, in California, in Santa Cruz, these are the tents of Kadar where the darkness is particularly thick. So at this conference in Colorado, we had people coming from other countries. We had people coming from other parts of this country and they would come from the Midwest and they're going, man, what is going on in Colorado? As soon as you step off the airplane and drive through Denver and get up into Boulder, it's weird here. Well, what they're feeling is the earth worship. The creation worship, the exchange of truth for lies that is becoming enculturated in Colorado. And I'm, I'm there going, seems normal to me because <laughs> I'm not from Ohio or Illinois. We're from Santa Cruz and it's weird here, not in a fun way. And so as, as we live here, my hope is that Every week when we're all surrounded by all the godlessness and immorality, that we're not just getting numb to it, but that we're abiding in God's Word more and that His Word is abiding in us more and more richly and that He is cultivating in us a hatred from this world, right? Deliver us from these lying lips. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, right? That's, and, that, and that then also on the other side, cultivating in us this deep and deepening longing for Him, for His presence, so that the thing that you look forward to the most during any given week as you sojourn in Santa Cruz and in the tents of Kadar and among all of the ungodliness of this world, it's, the thing I want the most is to come and to ascend into the courts of the Lord and to draw near to His presence and to worship Him and receive mercy and grace from Him because my soul is parched and hungry out there. Do you, do you long for the Lord's day more than anything I do? I've learned to in this world. Because I've learned that when I'm dry, when I'm desperate, when my soul is weighed down, when I'm discouraged, I show up here. And as, as soon as Ian gets up and starts reading from the Psalms and praying to God and the first song starts to be sung, all of those clouds break. And the radiance of His goodness shines down and my soul is full of gratitude and hope and peace. That's what the Word of God is cultivating and the Psalms are expressing. Now that longing that Psalm 120 speaks of to sojourn away from Meshach and Kedar and toward Jerusalem and the temple and the presence of God, that longing to leave and go is followed by Psalm 121. They go together. And Psalm 121 then describes the journey towards Jerusalem. The weary saint of God is his heart burdened down with all of the pressures and struggles of life in this godless world. But having been made glad when his friend said to him, let's go to the house of the Lord, having been encouraged and comforted and strengthened and, and, and given great hope by the great blessing of coming into God's presence, now the weary one begins his journey, his pilgrimage, heading out of Meshach and toward Jerusalem. Maybe for Passover, in order to celebrate how God delivered His people from the wicked Egyptians and be filled with that hope so that when He goes back home, He can remember God's deliverance. Or, or maybe He's going for Sukkot, uh, tabernacles, booze, commemorating God's sheltering of His people in the arid wilderness along the way so that He can remember this is who God is. This is what God does. He's always with me. He's always providing. He's always sheltering. He's always my refuge and my rock and my fortress. 
So here's the world-weary saint, leaving his home in Meshach and among the tents of Kedar, having cried out to distress, having gladly set off with his friends and family to Jerusalem. Now he's singing as his gaze, as he's walking, falls upon the mountains that frame the path that he's walking along. Verse 1 of Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? And scholars are a little bit divided about the exact significance specifically of that question, that statement in verse 1 of Psalm 121. There are, according to scholars, two most likely meanings there. And these scholars tell us we need to choose which one is best. And I find that a little bit funny because I'm no scholar, but I don't know why you have to choose. I think, I think scholars sometimes are so scholarly that they get into this Western sort of compartmentalized way of thinking that Hebrew people didn't think like. And they force us to have to pick. So I don't think we need to pick. Look, um, the scholars say that either the psalmist is saying in Psalm 121 verse 1 this, that as he's sojourning to Jerusalem, he's looking up at the hills that, again, frame the pathway of his journey, and he's seeing in those hills a potential source of danger along the journey. Or the other option is that he's seeing in the hills a source of potential safety, somewhere to go and hide. And the scholars say we've got to pick one of those two, but I say we don't have to choose because most probably the writer was thinking both things when he wrote that verse. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? Can you see it? Picture yourself in his shoes. You're leaving your home in a land dominated by ungodliness and falsehood and immorality. You're sojourning along the pilgrim road to Jerusalem, to where the temple is, to draw near to God, to worship Him. All of your senses are going to be focused on God, right? His holiness, His truth, His mercy, and on receiving from Him all of the grace and mercy that you need to live faithfully in this world. You're sojourning, and and the path that takes you there is, it's a valley that is defined on both sides by these big towering hills and mountains. I lift my eyes up to the hills. What are you thinking in those moments as you look at the hills? Very likely you're thinking more than one thing. You're thinking first that those hills might be a source of danger that might come upon you because wild animals live in those hills. And they might come down into the valley that you're walking in and attack you and do harm to you and try to make dinner of you. And you also would probably be thinking that there are dangers in the valley that maybe you could escape from if you went up into the hills, right? That they might be a source of refuge for you. There are thieves and robbers along the road. And they may be waiting to ambush me along my journey, and I may be able to find refuge from that danger in a cave maybe up in the hills. Maybe I could find a crag in the rocks to sort of wedge myself into so that I only have one trajectory to worry about danger coming at me from, and I can sleep there and spend the night there until the sun comes up and then continue along, right? I think that having both of these potential realities in his mind, the potential for danger that lies among the hills, and the potential also for shelter that the hills might provide, is what's prompting him to say what he says in the first verse here of Psalm 121. What does he, what does he say as he sees all of that in the hills? I lift my eyes up to those hills, what do, and, and, and I panic about the danger that that they pose to me. Does he say that? No. Does he say, I lift my eyes up to those hills and I know that my true help in this world, what I really need in this world, comes from the hills themselves. That's what's really going to protect me. Does he say that? No. He doesn't say, really, what I know is that I can hide myself and find shelter from the troubles of this world in this world itself, right? That's, 
That's what people of the world do. That's what people who don't know God do. They look for help from the world. Their hearts fear, first of all, the things of this world more than the God who made the world. And then secondly, they put all of their confidence, they anchor all of their hope, they find all of their security in the things of this world much more than in the eternal sovereign God who made the world. But what does the psalmist do? Who longs in his heart to come into the presence of God. What does he say? Well, he knows, he knows better, right? than to assume that the help that he needs to deal with the troubles of this world can come from the world itself. And so he goes on in verse 2 and sings with a joyful heart, My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Nothing can come out of those hills which he made that he doesn't want to come out of those hills and hurt me. And those hills cannot provide me any kind of help or shelter that even compares to the refuge that He is. My help comes from the one who made the heaven and the earth. He's the one, right? And we can all say, right? We can all say, amen, but the real question is, how do we, how do we live? Because what we ultimately have confidence in is proven by what we are most afraid of. And what we find most refuge in, isn't it? It's easy to say with our mouths, my help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. But, but does my life actually demonstrate that I trust in Him more than I trust the creation? That I fear Him more than I fear anything in the creation, whether it be wild animals or thieves or robbers or, or viruses, sicknesses, death? What do I fear more? I'm afraid that a lot of Christians in the past two years have had their souls conditioned to fear things in this world more than the God who made this world. And that there is a a dominant undercurrent of fearfulness instead of faithfulness that's driving a lot of us. And churches are complicit in it. Who do you trust? Who do you fear more? Who do you find shelter and solace and comfort and help in more? What do you say more? I need a break physically. I need a vacation. What I really, really need is a massage. I mean, those aren't bad things, right? Breaks and vacations, recreation. God gives those kinds of things to us in this world, and they are good for us in this world. The question is, as good as those things are, as helpful as those things are, that God gives us in this world that are part of this world and life in this world, do you need those kinds of things more? Do you need the things that He gives more than you need Him who gives them? More than you need Him. Do you turn to those things more than and before you turn to Him? Or, Or instead of turning to Him, Does your heart have more confidence in the creation than it does in the Creator? Well, not the writer of Psalm 121. Not the God-fearing pilgrim. Not the saint. Not the child of the Most High God. He knows better, and so should we. My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Our help cannot possibly come more from the world. From the heavens and the earth themselves. From the things in this world than from the one who made it all, right? Who spoke it all into existence, who upholds it by the word of his power. And yet, how prone we are to fearing the things of this world more than we fear him. I mean, honestly, do the hills present potential dangers? Are there things to be threatened by in this world? Yes, of course there are. That makes our hearts fear. But Christians, adopted children of the Most High God, He made those things. He's sovereign over those things. He's sovereign over the hills and whatever comes out of them. Is He sovereign over the potential dangers that you face in your life? The hardships, the pains, the trials, the disappointments, 
the things that just threaten to absolutely rip your life apart and, 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 and rip your soul. Is he sovereign over those things? He is. Which, which means he intends some good purpose to come to you through those things if you'll put your trust in him. The psalmist says then, going on in verse 3 of Psalm 121, this God, this Lord, right? All caps, L-O-R-D, which you know they, they did in translating the English Bibles in order to render the covenant name of God that appears in Hebrew, Yahweh, the great I Am, the self-sufficient one, the self-existing one, the eternal one without beginning and without end. He is the one who will not let your foot be moved. And he who keeps you will not slumber. One time when Wendy and I were walking up in Fall Creek here through the woods in God's creation, I stepped on a tree root. You ever do that when you're out hiking in the woods? And I I rolled my ankle bad and I went down really hard. I fell with my full weight against that ankle and ended up on the ground. And Wendy's going, just stay there, stay there, I'll, I'll help. And I said, you know, in my pride, no, I'm fine. And I get back up and I keep, I'm fine. I keep hobbling along the trail, right? Walk it off, you'll be fine in my own strength. <laughs> and pretty soon we came to a big hill that we needed to hike down, pretty steep hill that we needed to hike down. And with that compromised ankle, I started down that hill. And because I was an idiot, as soon as I put my full weight on that foot, it just folded, and I literally just rolled all the way down to the bottom of that hill. So now I'm all banged up and dirty and bruised. My doctor, several months later, I went in to see my doctor just for a normal physical, and he goes, what's going on with your ankle? Because, you know, it's shaped differently now. And it had healed up pretty well, and I was able to walk pretty normally. And I said, oh, you know, I sprained it out in the woods. And he's feeling, and he goes, no, no, you broke it. <laughs> this thing's been broken. And like a fool, I had just kept on walking on it anyways. Because there in the woods, trusting in my own wisdom and ability, coming down that hill in my weakness, my foot slipped. That's how hills are, right? There's all kinds of roots and rocks and uneven places to trip us up in this world. And if we put our confidence in ourselves or in this world, then we're going to fall. We're going to slip if we're leaning on our own understanding instead of trusting in the Almighty Sovereign God with all our heart and putting our full faith in Him to make our paths straight instead of trusting ourselves or the wisdom or the powers of the things of this world. Trust Him. And He won't let your foot slip. Because He is the eternal sovereign Lord. He is our God. And verse 4, He's the one, He never slumbers. He's the one who never sleeps. Because of who He is. Because He's eternal. Because He's all-knowing. There's never an instant where God doesn't have full awareness of every single thing that's going on in your life. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. You remember... Elijah on Mount Carmel, making fun of those false prophets as they were trying to make something supernatural happen by praying to all of the gods of Baal. And Elijah goes, waiting, you know, for something to happen as they pray and make a big hoopla. And Elijah goes, maybe he's asleep. Maybe your God took a nap. Just kind of mocking him, kind of teasing him because the, the one true God doesn't nap doesn't sleep, doesn't ever have have any instances of of unconsciousness, non-awareness, by virtue of who He is and what He is as God. So, my help comes from Him in this world. Not from the earth itself, not from anything in the creation, not from any place in the creation, not from any wisdom that comes out of this creation, but from the Lord of creation. My help all along the hard, painful pilgrim way comes and and must only come from Him. His Word is sufficient and His presence is sure. 
He's the one without beginning. He's the one without end. He's the one who exists eternally. He's the one who made by the sovereign power of His voice everything that exists. He's the all-knowing one. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. Even while you're sleeping and slumbering, He's there by your side, fully aware. And no evil can befall you that He won't allow. My hope in this world, unless I'm a stubborn, sinful, fleshly, unbelieving fool, my hope, my help comes from the eternal Creator and nothing in the creation itself. Because the whole creation depends for its very existence on the one who made it. And so must I, because I am a part of the creation. I am absolutely and utterly dependent on my Creator in whom I live and breathe and have my very being, right? Or are you living day by day under the delusion that the creation itself poses some threat that God is unaware of and not capable of dealing with in your life? And so you're so focused on the fearful thing that you've forgotten the ever-present, never-slumbering, almighty God who's with you. Or... Are you living under the delusion that the creation itself has more to offer you than the great creator? That there's something in the world that can benefit you more than the one who spoke it into existence? Now the world, the creation, is what is full of roots and obstacles that trip us up and cause our feet to slip and make us fall. But the maker of heaven and earth is the one and the only one who will not let our foot be moved. He is your keeper, verse 5. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. He will keep your going in and your coming out from this time forth and forevermore. What what does he mean? Does he mean that if we trust God, he's not going to let anything bad happen to us ever at all in this world? We'll never suffer? We'll never have trials. We'll never have afflictions. Well, no, that's not what he means. Of course not. Because he himself, when he came into this world, came as the suffering servant. Came in order to be despised and rejected and lay down his own life and suffer and be afflicted and die. And so see, the promise that trusting the Lord of creation to not let your foot be moved and to keep you from all evil and to keep your life and to be your shade from the scorching heat of the sun by day and the moon by night, which might expose your vulnerability to thieves and ravenous animals, right? All of that is not a promise that if we trust the Lord, then our lives will always be free of hard, painful circumstances, It's a promise that as we journey along the way where the hard and painful circumstances are normal, regular, ordinary parts of the pilgrim life in this world, that we will never ever have to face those hardships alone. But that He will be with us, as the prophet says, through all of the deep waters, through all of the fiery trials. That no matter how ferocious the threats that face us in this world are, no matter how fearful the trials and troubles of this world become, they are nothing compared to the God who is always with His people, who is always with His own, and who sovereignly orchestrates those all of those things such that they work together for your good for those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. The great I am, the one without beginning, the one without end, the the uncreated creator of all things, who's present everywhere, will keep your life. What does he mean? Not, Not will keep your life comfortable in this world that is temporary. He means what he means in verse 8, right? The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. That's what he means. He will keep your life. He'll be with you through every hard trial and dark distress, sanctifying all of those things to you, helping you to grow because of 
His strength in your weakness and all of the rest. He'll use those things to teach you as you sojourn, not to look to the hills for protection, but to look to Him because He's the one that made the hills and sovereignly ordained the sufferings and the threats and the dangers. And as He keeps you all along the way, as you trust Him all along the way, as you fear Him all along the way, He will guide you closer and closer to the eternal kingdom of the blessed Son, Jesus Christ, and keep your life forever. That's what He's talking about. He's talking about eternity. And He is the only one who can keep your life for eternity. Nothing in this world can even promise that. Lying voices in this world try to promise that if you trust them more than God, then you'll have comfort for a while, but they cannot promise you eternity. This God is the one who will keep you from this time forth and forevermore as you trust Him along the way. Because that's who He is. He's the Lord, the maker of it all. The sovereign king of it all. The one who commands it all by the power of his word. He's the great I am. And the Psalms all teach us to trust him. And all pour into us a knowledge about him that make our souls hungry to know him. And to be with him. He is our maker, Psalm 95 says. He's the maker of everything, Psalm 104 says. He's the one who is righteous and just, Psalm 7. He's the one who is holy, Psalm 22. Who is strong and mighty, Psalm 24. Whose greatness is unsearchable and who is righteous in all of His ways, Psalm 145. Who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing, who is ever-present, Psalm 139. Who is merciful and loving and gracious, Psalm 103. Who is our fortress and refuge. Psalm 18, Psalm 46. Who redeems the life of His servants forevermore, Psalm 34. Who belongs, to whom belongs salvation, Psalm 3. And steadfast love, Psalm 13. And who is infinitely faithful, Psalm 31. And who is our shepherd, Psalm 23. The psalmist is screaming to us all throughout. That nothing can compare with God, right? Psalm 40. And so, the key is to to make sure that your soul is so focused on Him and His Word that He is making your heart long for and glad to be in His presence. To draw near to Him and to cast your cares upon Him because He's your Heavenly Father. He's adopted you. He's bought you by the precious blood of His own Son. How glad is your heart to draw near to Him and unto that place where Jesus, our risen and enthroned great high priest, sits interceding for us, affirming to us that there is no condemnation in Him. The one who takes all of our prayers and all of our works and us in all of our weakness and failure and imperfection and presents us before God by covering us with His own righteousness and cleansing us and sanctifying us and making us acceptable to God. What do you want to do more than to draw near to Him? How glad are you to draw near and to be filled by God the Holy Spirit with great confidence of His love for us and with assurance that you belong to Him as a child of the Most High God? And that He's always with you, that He never sleeps, that He never slumbers, that He never leaves, that He never forsakes, that He always encourages and strengthens and sanctifies as we sojourn through this dark world and run with endurance towards the gates of the eternal kingdom. And guess what? You don't, we get to draw near on the day that He's set aside. And, and when we gather and assemble as His people, which is a higher privilege in this world than anything else, and through which He works in unique and special ways that He has covenanted to work through as we obey and do not forsake assembling together as His people. But guess what? You don't have to wait for Sunday. You can draw near every day 
He never sleeps and slumbers. You're never going to disturb him and wake him up. The gates of the throne room are always wide open to you. You have access through Christ Jesus to draw near, to pray, to cast your cares, to have Jesus present you before God as acceptable and to be filled with the Holy Spirit and truth and strength and power and confidence. And so during the journey, during the sojourn, know your God and draw near to Him and be satisfied in Him. He will hold you fast. Amen? Pray with me, and then we're going to sing that. Our God and our Father, we love You, and we trust You, and we acknowledge to You, and we give You praise for the freedom that we have to acknowledge to You that oftentimes our faith is feeble. We can come to You, Father, and say without fear of being condemned by You, Father, we believe, would You please help our unbelief, because You know And it delights You for us to come and to acknowledge that we have more and more need of Your grace. That we're not there yet. That we're still striving and we can't do it in our own strength. And so Father, help us and teach us to be full of truth about You so that we might have a deep and spiritual thirst and longing for You. To be with You, to commune with You, to draw near to You. And to know that every step along the pilgrim way is a step that you take with us. And so, Father, help us to fear nothing more than we fear you. And to trust nothing more than we trust you. To love nothing more than we love you. And to rest ourselves in you. And to be bold to serve you. And to be energized to proclaim you. Father, glorify yourself in your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.